Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hi, this is Colin McEnroe. You're listening to a brand new radio program. This is not The Colin McEnroe Show. This is a program called Pardon Me, another damn impeachment show. It'll be running weekly. And we're going to spend some time not only bringing you up to date on the fast-moving developments in the Donald Trump impeachment case, but also talking about how culture responds to it. We're also going to try to talk to average folks out there, particularly if they have questions. And we'll try to get those questions answered by experts. We'll talk about the arts. We'll talk about anything else that kind of flaps over our way. It's a little bit of an adventure for us. So please come along for the ride right after this. Hi, I'm Colin McEnroe, and I don't know if you just tuned into this somehow. This is a new show we're doing, both as a broadcast and a podcast. It's called Pardon Me, Another Damn Impeachment Show. And, you know, as we're getting ready to do it, you know, you sort of wonder, is this a good idea or not? So I decided to get in touch with somebody I know who knows a lot about the current, maybe as much as anybody, about the current state of modern podcasting. His name is Nicholas Qua, and he writes a newsletter called Hot Pod, which everybody in the podcasting industry devours. He has a sense of the market. So I called up Nick, and here's what happened. Hey, Nick, this is Colin McEnroe. Hey, how's it going? It's going okay, Nick. I was calling you up because we're thinking about starting a new podcast that will also run as an, a broadcast radio show about impeachments. And I was wondering whether you think that's a good idea or not. Um, well, let me just put this way. You're in the past four weeks, you're maybe the sixth person I've talked to on the record about like impeachment podcasts. Yeah. It's a little bit like saying, should you start a pizza restaurant in New Haven? And like my feeling is like, uh, you know, only if you got something new to bring to the table. Well, I do want to say that this podcast does use a wood oven. So, you oh, know, fantastic. yeah, I mean, I think it has a kind of nicely smoky, charred flavor to it. So but but you're basically saying you think the market is glutted at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think there's sort of like two components. To the fundamental problem here, it, one is the sort of market saturation aspect of it, which is to say, like, you know, there's a ton of both legacy media publishers and new media publishers and independent people producing material and news products around the impeachment storyline. And so, you know, the question fundamentally of these things is that, like, who is this for and what does it fundamentally bring to the table that wasn't there already? Sometimes there's a good reason to jump into a crowded field. You know, I think like I feel like the Democratic presidential candidate pool is pretty good confidence. Like, do you have a, an issue or a specific angle that you can expand on that hasn't been brought to the table already? But, you know, that's the reason why uh, candidates drop out. <laughs> so you're saying basically if I get into the impeachment podcasting race right now, I'm sort of the John Delaney of podcasts. 
Uh, assuming that John Delaney is one of the Democratic candidates, then yes. He, mo- he most assuredly <laughs> is. But I also don't blame you at all for not knowing, which I think sort of highlights the point that you're making. All right. So possibly a stupid idea, possibly a waste of my efforts and talents that I could devote to something else. So I'm going to go for it. But thanks for your wise counsel. Good luck, and uh, I'll be rooting for you. <laughs> okay, Nick Qua. I'll talk to you later, man. Talk to you soon. So that's how crazy we are. Even in the teeth of warnings from America's foremost podcasting expert, we're going to do this. We're going to do a regular show called Pardon Me, another damn impeachment show, question mark. And it's going to be a regular thing. We're going to bring together legal experts. You're about to hear one of America's foremost experts in impeachment law and people from the world of culture. We're going to talk about how television influences our tolerance for things like impeachment hearings. You're going to hear today from Dave Eggers, one of America's cherished novelists, about how the whole thing looks to him. And we're going to take questions from you. You can send a question, which we will get answered by an expert to our email address, pardonme at ctpublic.org. So that's the idea. Stay with us. Let's get going. When we talked about doing the first episode of this show, I don't know. I'm absolutely must-have guest is Ross Garber, teaches political investigations and impeachment law at Tulane Law School, CNN legal analyst, and has represented four governors in impeachment proceedings. He has, as I've said in the past, more sleeves rolled up, hands in the dishwater, experience with impeachment than anybody. And he's joining us from an airport. That's how much in demand he is. He has to fly yeah. around places. So first of all, Ross, welcome back. It's great to be here. I love the hands in the dishwater piece. Yeah. So feel free to use that on your you know, business cards, your stationery, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. billboards, whatever. So obviously a lot of things have happened in the last few days the way that they tend to. So I'd like to begin by exploring a couple of things that I know you've been thinking about. One of the questions that probably is still a little bit hanging here is whether or not the House Democrats know exactly what they want to have as part of the articles and whether that is absolutely 100 percent restricted to the Ukraine situation or whether it spills over into the Mueller probe. I mean, what's your sense of that and what would be your advice to them on that? So I'm hearing that they are actually not sure that this is a process where they're working on drafting articles of impeachment, not just by committee, but by a committee of committees. Mm-hmm. It's it's not like the last one where they had the Judiciary Committee sort of totally responsible. Who You've got the Judiciary Committee, you got the House Intel Committee, you've got oversight, you've got a whole bunch of folks. And as recently as today, I was even hearing some folks saying, well, wait a minute, what about the Emoluments Clause? Are we going to just ignore that? I think they don't know what they're going to do. If I were advising them, I'd advise them to keep it as tight as possible provide sufficient notice in the articles of what the issues are so you don't have big due process you know arguments but then leave a little room should additional facts come up my suggestion would be you know focus on the, the Ukraine issues and then give a serious look to the Mueller obstruction issues but there are dangers in expanding into that and you know one is that they haven't actually held any hearings about it so it's it, it is a difficulty posed by the fact that they are really trying to get this done. They need to get this done. They feel before 
Christmas. Because of that hurry, this brings up the other thing that I'm the most intrigued by or I've been fascinated by. I've had a lot of conversations with people who feel similarly. And of course, in a way, Jonathan Turley is the embodiment of this particular idea, which is they're in such a hurry that they're doing something that you don't see very often with a case of this magnitude. They're just giving up on uncooperative witnesses, giving up on documentary evidence that's being withheld from them, giving up on court battles that they probably would win based on, I mean, you may not agree, but based on what little I know about this. And it does seem that in their haste, they're really not assembling everything that's available to them. Yeah. And, and you know, and that's the problem. You know, Turley, I, it, it sounded like had an issue with sort of speed qua speed. I don't have an issue with, with the speed of it. You know, I think impeachments should be as fast as possible. They should, you know, happen in emergency situations. If you can sort of diddle doddle around and, you know, wait on impeachment for months and years, well, you might as well wait till the next election. So the speed isn't the issue. The issue is do they have enough and do they have sufficient information to impeach? And you know, that's the that's the difficulty. And I think they're finding it, you know, hard to deal with that issue. Because on the one hand, they're saying, oh, yeah, we got enough and the facts are, you know, not in dispute and we're ready to go ahead. You know, on the other hand, there is a lot of information out there that they don't have, both that might help a case for impeachment, but also that might undermine a case for impeachment. And so regardless of what they do now, you know, watch for a problem that's going to happen. They're going to get more evidence. They're not going to leave it all on the t- all you know, unfound. They're going to get more evidence. And then the question becomes, what do they do with that additional evidence? And yes, you know, you're right. There is a bunch of stuff that they are leaving out there that they're not pursuing, which you know, I think is problematic. I think they should have been as aggressive as possible from the beginning to get the facts. If they think they got a court case and there's a rush, go to court, go to court and ask for a decision fast. They haven't done that because I've seen courts and, you know, federal courts and even appeals courts move super, super, super quickly when they perceive that there actually is an emergency. Right. Here's uh, here's Jonathan Turley talking about this uh, on actually National Public Radio with Rachel Martin. Well, what I was telling Congress is that they've burned two months. They should have gone to court over people like John. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, to subpoenaed and gone to court over people like John Bolton and gotten a court order. That would make it a stronger case. So, you know, with Bolton, it's kind of interesting too, Ross, because it seemed as though his lawyer... I suppose this could even be kind of a trap, but it seemed as though his lawyer was dangling this idea that Bolton was present for conversations that have never really come up in the official record, that essentially Bolton knows something that people would be really interested in if he could be compelled to tell it, which represents a set of circumstances under which he would be willing to tell it, right? He basically said, the courts tell me to do it, I'll do it. Yeah, and in some ways it did seem like he was asking for it. He's, He's walking this line between on the one hand, you know, he's an institutionalist. And so, you know, executive authority means something to him and it's important. And in addition, you know, he's a lifelong Republican, so he doesn't want to completely alienate the Republican base by thumbing his nose at the president's orders. But on the other hand, he also respects Congress and he seems to have something he wants to get off his chest. And so it does seem like he was suggesting, hey, look, guys, all you have to do is go to court, 
go get a court order. Tell me to be there and I'll be there. And I got some interesting stuff to say. I should say that we're having this conversation. We're recording this conversation on Friday afternoon. I think it's by 5 p.m. today that Donald Trump and his lawyers have to say whether or not they want to participate in this next phase of hearings. I'm assuming the fact that they've been pretty quiet about this whole idea means they're not going to do it. Well, I I think what we're going to see from them is a letter that says, well, what is there for us to do? Are you taking witness testimony? Because if you're taking witness testimony, let us know. Are you going to let us call witnesses? Because if you are, you know, let us know because that could bear on on our decision. But Judiciary Committee, you haven't noticed hearings where you're going to take witness testimony. You haven't noticed hearings where you're going to let us present evidence. And so it doesn't seem like there's that much for us to do. And under those circumstances, you know, yeah, we don't need to just sit at, an, at a table. So on, on Monday, there's going to be another hearing. Judiciary Committee, Intelligence Committee lawyers come in basically explain their report, take questions. And then after that, presumably, the Judiciary Committee will have its own debate about articles, what it's going to send forward to the larger house. I'm sure you're bursting with all kinds of ideas about what might come up there. Let me just ask you about one thing, and then you can take this wherever you want. But, you know, one interesting question is intent, right? Turley brings this up. There's a way in which Even I, who have a somewhat dark outlook towards President Trump, I could see that ultimately what's happened here is, as he's constantly saying, he thinks under Article 2 he can do anything, that he is free to do anything. He he has the most expansive imperial notion of the presidency of any commander in chief in history, as as far as I can tell, and that this is just part of it, right? What he did reflected not so much some kind of criminal or even nefarious intent, but his more or less benign belief that he can do anything he wants to and it's never wrong. And I'm wondering whether, I mean, you know, because in fact impeachment is this thing that we kind of understand as we go every time we do it, whether or not that's an argument worth having, particularly from the Trump supporting side, the argument about intent. So I've been saying for months that I think it all boils down to intent. That's where it should be. You know, was the president's intent corrupt or was it not corrupt? I think that's what it's about. I don't think it actually is is going to be the discussion that you're suggesting there where if a president thinks he can do anything, well, then he can do anything. And so his intent is pure. I wouldn't go that far. But I think what the issue could be is, you know, what if his intent just with respect to Ukraine was actually about corruption. So, for example, and one of the difficulties is there really are so many facts we don't know. We don't know what Bolton's involvement was or Pompeo or really Mulvaney. Or, we don't know a lot of things. But imagine this. Imagine if the reality was somebody, say a very prominent mayor, very prominent former prosecutor, corruption fighter, comes to the president and says, Mr. President, you should know that there were big issues with Ukraine, that Ukraine tried to interfere in the 2016 election, that there was some involvement between Ukraine and the DNC, and the DNC server might actually be in Ukraine. And in addition, Mr. President, it may be that there's a big corruption deal between a Ukrainian company and the former vice president's family, and it involved potentially Ukrainian officials. And those are big deals, Mr. President. And, you know, before you send them money, you know, you should know those things. 
And the president says, well, geez, that's very interesting. Let me consult with my secretary of state. Let me consult with my national security advisor. Let me consult with my White House counsel about those things. And the president does that. And they all say, whoa, you know, that, that's actually interesting. And the president says to them, you know, what I think we should do is before we send them aid, you know, let's, let's make sure that those aren't issues or at least that Ukraine is looking at those issues. And they say, well, you know, that's actually a pretty good idea. And that gets implemented. Would you impeach a president under those circumstances? Well, I would say probably not, right? You know, we don't know if those kinds of conversations happened or not, but we do know is that at some point in the process, at some level, the White House chief of staff was involved in this. The secretary of state was involved in this. The White House counsel's office got brought in when lower level officials thought there were problems. And so I think intent actually is a big issue. I mean, one possible response to that would be if, in fact, a conversation like that existed and that it involved, say, Mick Mulvaney, Mick Mulvaney would be in there testifying to it. In other words, it would seem unlikely that something potentially as exculpatory as what you just described, if it existed, I mean, would they be holding it back just because it'll land so well in a Senate trial as opposed to here? I think the reason why they might hold it back is they might perceive that the House process is partisan, that they're not going to get a fair shake in the House, that if they put Mick Mulvaney in a hearing room in front of you know live TV cameras and say, hey, House Democrats have Adam, that it's not going to come out in a fair way. And so therefore, well, you know what? They may say, we'll wait. If you guys want to impeach the president, fine. You know, let's see what happens at the time it gets to the Senate. And if that's going to happen, then we'll think about having Mick Mulvaney provide information to the Senate. You know, the argument that you just put forward also, I think, does kind of suggest how they could open the door in the Senate trial to to calling Hunter Biden, to calling maybe people who had some knowledge or connection to the DNC servers. In other words, and I don't know how much power Chief Justice Roberts has over what's germane and what's not germane, but if that's the argument they're going to make, that President Trump was genuinely concerned about corruption in Ukraine, had been told that it would really be irresponsible to give Ukraine money without having first pursued these questions. That kind of opens the door for them to call all kinds of people who haven't really been part of the conversation in the hearings so far. Yeah, it sure does. I mean, I I think we should expect to see that argument from the president's team. And I could see it being hard to talk the president out of a really strong effort to call Hunter Biden for that exact reason. You know, if I were representing the president, that would be my pitch. It would be information from him and his testimony is important because it it bears on whether there were legitimate concerns that the president might have about corruption in Ukraine that would cause him to ask Ukrainian officials to you know, make sure that there weren't corrupt reasons why the investigation of Burisma the company that the former vice president's son sat on the board, why that investigation, you know, was dropped. And in terms of how much power the chief justice has, you know, fundamentally, remember, there haven't been very many impeachment trials of presidents before the Senate. There have been a total of two. In both of those situations, the chief justice has pretty much deferred to the institution of the Senate, which right now is controlled by Republicans. So 
it's going to largely be up to Mitch McConnell and his caucus about who gets called and who doesn't and how they testify, whether there's discovery, all of those things. Last question for you, Ross Garber. Was it a mistake Is it potentially a mistake for the Democrats to have limited the scope so much in these hearings, even in terms of maybe not calling Hunter Biden or not calling somebody who could have addressed this question about Trump's belief in Ukrainian interference? In other words, this is kind of the discovery process. You kind of want to know if you're the Democrats, how's Hunter Biden going to do if he does get called in a Senate trial? There's so many things, as you're suggesting, that they don't know because they're boxes they never opened up. Was that maybe a tactical error? Here's where I think Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats really blew it. Whether they ultimately called Hunter Biden or not, where I think they really blew it was not just adopting the same rules as applied in Nixon and then were adopted unanimously on a bipartisan basis in Clinton. And those rules would have provided for the participation of the president's lawyers in the impeachment proceedings. And at that point, whether they called Hunter Biden or not, they would have actually had, I think, a more full vetting of whether they should take information from him, whether information from him was potentially relevant or not relevant. But right now, everybody, and and in particular the Democrats, have sort of skipped over this Hunter Biden issue and the DNC server issue, saying it's been completely debunked, but without explaining to the public why it has been debunked. And I think it's very dangerous that they have now left that process up to the Senate, where the president is going to have a greater ability to control the narrative. All right. Ross Garber, who teaches political investigations and impeachment law at Tulane Law School, CNN legal analyst, represented four governors in impeachment proceedings. He's at the airport. He's got his <laughs> he's got his Nicholas Sparks novel and his diet Sprite. He's ready to fly. Thanks for talking to us. Always good to be with you, Colin. Thanks. One of the things we're going to do a lot on Pardon Me is talk about the ways in which culture and politics and governance all overlap. So coming up is someone who's written a piece about how Peak TV prepared us for the impeachment hearings right after this. So I I have to preface this by saying that I had a revelation, an aperçu, circa 1986 was when the Iran-Contra hearings were playing out. And it was the first time that I really grasped the fact that how Ali North was as a television character. I mean, in kind of a Marshall McLuhan sense, how he appeared on television was nearly as relevant, maybe even more relevant than the substance of what was being said about him and what he had to say. How things play on television when you're having congressional hearings or any kind of major event like this. It's an incredibly important facet of it. So Joanna Weiss, our guest right now, the editor-in-chief of Experience Magazine and a frequent contributor to Politico Magazine, has already begun wrestling with this question. So maybe before we begin, Joanna, let's listen to Saturday Night Live, which took as its premise the notion that The impeachment hearings would be too boring to enlist the attentions of viewers unless something were done to make it a more familiar, dramatic format. Let the record show that the president is intimidating the witness. Uh, Intimidating? If the president wanted to intimidate you, he'd shoot you in the face in the middle of Fifth Avenue. Okay, and then would you impeach him? Well, I'd have to look at the facts, but no. 
Not so fast. Bill Taylor! What are you doing here? Unlike other people in the Trump administration, I show up. And I have a bombshell revelation. There was a second phone call. A second phone call? So lots of soap opera music. So Joanna Weiss, the whole idea was nobody could possibly watch these things unless they were tarted up in some kind of highly enticing way. But I don't know. It seems like people do want to watch these hearings. Well, you're right. NBC wrote a story with a headline at the beginning of the impeachment hearing saying, oh, unclear after the first day whether the hearings have enough pizzazz to attract the public. And and they got a lot of flack for that. People saying, oh, it's terrible. It's people's civic duty to watch. But what actually wound up happening over the course of that week or so was that this turned into terrific television and really in the mold, I think, of some of the peak TV, golden age, you know, high serial dramas that you would find on a network like HBO or FX. I mean, this was this was dramatic and pretty riveting, although long stuff. Right. And I mean, there's so much to say about this, but, you know, in a way, one could argue that the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas hearings, the OJ trial and the Clinton impeachment kind of almost taught peak TV how to become peak TV. You know, when they were actually happening, people were glued to their sets at that time, glued to every detail, very knowledgeable about individual characters, names of lawyers, names of witnesses. And then we got a fictional culture with shows like The Wire, where you kind of had to do the same thing. That's right. I mean, a lot of TV still is out there that's kind of more procedural based. Right, a show like CSI, where every episode is self-contained, and you know the basic lead characters, but the story kind of rises and falls and has that big dramatic moment in the middle, and it, it, it's over and done in an hour. And then came The Wire, and on ABC, Lost, and The Sopranos, and Mad Men, and and these were shows that had a huge ensemble cast that had complicated storylines that sometimes. There was a whole online ecosystem of people, you know, whether it was the networks or just fans, helping each other piece together the information. I mean, these required attention. You had to be able to follow it. You had to remember what was happening before. Things built on each other. It was really training people to watch and experience TV in an entirely different way. Now, I appreciate smart. But you got to know in this game, man, it ain't enough. You're a student of history. You know, this town had its share of smart players, man. Melvin, Little Will, Big Head Brother, Peanut, Warren. All real smart, man. Real smart. But you know, as soon as their names rang out, bam, feds is on them. Know what I mean? Government ain't want you to be organized. Nah, they want you scrimping and scraping and killing each other on the corner on some bull****. Not me. I remember when The Wire first dropped. I tried to watch it a first time, and I thought, I I just can't. I'm never going to be able to get through all this. It's just too many moving parts. And then came back to it about a year later and realized that it was was incredibly spellbinding. But in a way, yeah, we probably had to build some carrying capacity in our brains. And I think maybe another thing we've done, I'd love to get your reaction to this, is that peak TV sometimes is taught us you have to wait for things. If you think about Game of Thrones— the time between when viewers decided that King Joffrey or Ramsay Bolton really needed <laughs> to die 
and when they actually died was weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. Like, when are you going to kill this guy? I can't stand him. He's got to go. You know, and and that's a little bit closer to the way reality works, right? People don't just disappear because they're loathsome. No, in fact, lots of loathsome characters stick around because they're riveting in their loathsomeness. But yeah, these a lot of these shows, there's a rhythm to the way a season works. You know, some episodes that are exciting that are built around a set piece like a battle or a big trial. And then there are some episodes that are exposition. And then there's some episodes that are character studies. And as viewers, we kind of get used to the ebbs and flows. We understand that we need to build a relationship with the characters and an understanding of the characters so that we can get that payoff in the big, exciting episode. Right. I think the other thing that I've been feeling lately is that you know, we're sort of living in an Aaron Sorkin inversion right now. I mean, instead of <laughs> instead of the West Wing with this incredibly virtuous, rigorously self-examining president surrounded by these whip-smart aides. Leo, if I ever told you to get aggressive on campaign finance or gays in the military, you would tell me don't run too fast or go too far. If you ever told me to get aggressive about anything, I'd say I serve at the pleasure of the president. But we'll never know, sir, because I don't think you're ever going to say. I have said it, and nothing's ever happened. You want to see me orchestrate this right now? You want to see me mobilize these people? These people who would walk into fire if you told them to. These people who showed up to lead. These people who showed up to fight. We have Trump and, you know, a bunch of bumblers, most of whom he's going to fire sometime in the next two or three weeks anyway. The, the virtues that were enshrined on West Wing, loyalty, competence, forthrightness, are no longer embraced. And then to make matters even more insulting to Aaron Sorkin, Trump has started pardoning war criminals, which makes it seem like a few good men is also being turned on its head. Colonel <laughs> Jessup doesn't get convicted. He gets pardoned. There's a way in which we have been taught, you know, to pay attention to something as complicated as the West Wing. But we have different expectations between that and what we're getting from reality. Sure. And I've been thinking about this a lot because I think there is a much deeper cynicism that I don't know if TV has taught us this or reality has taught us this. But if you think about the TV shows that are about politics today, you think about Veep, where everyone is horrible and venal with really no exception. Right now, you're about as toxic as a urinal cake in Chernobyl, and I'm offering you a job. Just keep your skin free of all irritants for a few days. He said no irritants. You're an irritant. Actually, ma'am, I have a better idea. No, you don't. Mike, history's proven that. And if you listen to me, instead of your only two brain cells busy each other somewhere in the vast expanses of your misshapen skull, then maybe, Jonah, you might have a chance at becoming the first mentally impaired Frankenstein's monster to ever win an American election. Even a show like Ryan Murphy has a, has a politician, which is kind of an allegory about politics, that again kind of questions everyone's motives. In Aaron Sorkin's mind, I think a lot of people, so many people in politics were well-meaning but just lacked the courage to push it over the edge so he would invest them in these beautiful speeches and give them the courage to do what had to be done. And in, in today's view of politics, Nobody has courage. It's it's closer to the producers where people kind of bumble into a lot of power and don't know what to do with it. Well, yeah, although I think in these hearings, you know, I mean, f first of all, nobody talks in the snappy way that Aaron Sorkin characters talk. But, you know, it's weird. A lot of the impeachment witnesses were closer to the kinds of people that we did meet on the West Wing. I'll give you a quick example right here. Some of you on this committee appear to believe that Russia and its security services did not conduct a campaign against our country, and that perhaps, somehow, for some reason, Ukraine did. This is a fictional narrative that has been perpetrated and propagated by the Russian security services themselves. 
Right now, Russia's security services and their proxies have geared up to repeat their interference in the 2020 election. We are running out of time to stop them. That's, of course, Fiona Hill. But it's also kind of Olivia Coleman in some kind of Aaron Sorkin project, <laughs> right? Well, you know, it's funny. Adam, Adam Schiff couldn't have possibly cast this impeachment hearing in terms of laying the groundwork with certain characters who were kind of stern but decent civil servants. And then you had some characters who had a little bit of an edge to them. And then you had Ambassador to the UN, Gordon Sondland, who I think viewed himself as a character in a drama. I mean, he was kind of playing all sides and kind of playing for high drama and trying to drop one-liners in his speech. And then you capped it with Fiona Hill, who brought in that British accent, which the irony was, it was, as she said in her testimony, right, it was a working-class British accent. She could have never succeeded or gone far in her native England with that kind of working-class accent. But here in the U.S., in this hearing room, it made her sound that much smarter and more regal than anybody else in the room. Right. I, I think also they're dealing with a potential impeachee who learned how to play himself on television. And before Trump ever ran for president, one of the things he did was figure out how to play himself on television. He got a lot of coaching on that, I'm sure, to whatever degree it's possible to coach this person. And people who show up knowing how to play themselves probably do better. I thought Fiona Hill really kind of knew how to play the part of Fiona Hill in those hearings, to seize that moment and say these hard truths. Truths, you know, she really did come across as kind of Buffy quid pro quo slayer. She was, <laughs> she was absolutely poised, and yeah, it's hard to know how much of that was just innate, and how much of that, you know, the the, the lawyers, the committee staff, the people who were prepping these witnesses. It'd be interesting to know how much they considered television and the way this would play out on TV when they were prepping and preparing these witnesses for testimony. I would imagine that they had that in mind. Right. I think the other thing we have to acknowledge to ourselves, though, is one of the other lessons of peak TV is that people watch differently and people see the same things unfolding and they have very different reactions to it. So I, at the end of Breaking Bad, I did a piece for Salon where I talked about how Walter White had turned into a monster. Obviously, he has to die in the conclusion. And people on the comment threads were in overwhelming numbers saying, oh, no, Walter White's a hero. He's rising up and defining his own destiny and sticking it to the man and taking hold of his own life. And I'm thinking, well, no, he's killing people with these terrible drugs. Walt, please, let's both of us stop trying to justify this whole thing and admit you're in danger. Who are you talking to right now? Who is it you think you see? I am not in danger, Skyler. I am the danger. A guy opens his door and gets shot and you think that of me? No, I am the one who knocks. But it does help maybe explain how different groups of people can watch these hearings or watch the coverage of these hearings and draw completely different conclusions about them. Well, sure. One person's hero is another person's villain and one person's villain is another person's anti-hero. And that's another thing that these peak TV shows have done is they've really allowed us and encouraged us to invest sympathy and empathy in some characters who do some pretty terrible things. I mean, everyone from Tony Soprano to Jamie Lannister. But most of these peak TV central characters are not on some kind of 
upward redemption arc forever. They have peaks and valleys, and they really are morally compromised throughout. And the fascination is in watching those moments of virtue in the middle of this morally compromised buck and how they kind of lift themselves up and pull themselves back down again. Right. Well, we have to conclude here, although I think it's worth noting that you can be a hero, you can be an anti-hero. Sooner or later, you're probably going to wind up on Dancing with the Stars. I'm sure that's where (laughs) this whole process ends at some point. Joanna Weiss is the editor-in-chief of Experience Magazine, a frequent contributor to Politico, Slate, and The Economist in Politico Magazine. She wrote How Peak TV Prepared All of Us for the impeachment hearings. I recommend that you read it. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for staying with us. Coming up, we've got a question from one of our listeners and an expert answering that question and the novelist Dave Eggers talking about how impeachment looks through his lens. One of the regular features we want to have here on Pardon Me is the opportunity for people from the audience to ask questions, and we'll try to get them answered by the best experts that we can find. For now, you can send them to me, pardonme at ctpublic.org. So today we have a question from listener Rich Havorka. Is there anything that could prevent someone who has been impeached and removed from office from running for election to that same office? Say he's removed following the Republican National Convention in August. He's just free to campaign as the Republican nominee, right? All right. So we just happen to have a constitutional expert here, Rich. Adrienne Fulco of Trinity College is here, and she is going to answer your question. The fact of the matter is that although the Constitution allows the Senate to vote, to convict, remove, and then prevent the individual from holding office again, we do have evidence in the past of individuals who have been impeached and convicted and removed, but where the Senate did not vote to prevent them from running for office again, who actually then turned around and ran for office again. So what the Senate would need to do, there would need to be an article of impeachment, would be one way of doing it, that included the president from holding office again, and that was actually done in the case of Bill Clinton. So there is precedent for that. But to the actual question, are you automatically prevented? No. They have to take an affirmative step to do that. So was it with Elsie Hastings that they did that? Yes, it was Elsie Hastings. So I think, Rich, that's the answer to your question. The mechanism exists to disqualify an impeached politician, an impeached officer of government from holding future office, but it just doesn't – it's not part of a package deal. You actually have to affirmatively do that. Yes, and it's interesting that they did it with Clinton, but did not do it with Nixon. All right. So there's your answer. Once again, if uh, others of you in the outside world have questions, uh, write them to me. Pardon me at ctpublic.org. I'm talking to Dave Eggers right now, the author of 13 books, the founder of McSweeney's, among many other things he's founded. His new book is The Captain and the Glory and Entertainment. I would call it an allegory more than I would call it a satire. Yeah. But maybe you could talk about what it is that you field that you've written. Yeah, I've had trouble with the category. I don't know. I think it's somewhere between the two. But instead of taking place in the actual world that we know, it's a cruise ship called the Glory where it sort of is the setting and all the people on it sort of are stand-ins for the entire nation of the United States. And uh, 
their beloved captain is retiring and they have to elect a new one. And instead of choosing one of the many qualified first mates and maritime experts, they elect a guy that sells souvenirs by the putt-putt golf course and who hangs around the women's locker room. And right. so from there, it sort of <laughs> is a thinly veiled allegory for what we've been through these last three years. And for me, it was just, you know, I've been approaching the era as a journalist and going to Trump rallies and, and covering the effect of Trump's policies on immigration and asylum seeking. And this was a way to kind of step back a bit and um, match the absurdity of the time in fictional form. One of the things that I've been wondering about lately as we watch this process unfold, and it really was kind of starting to bother me today, and because you've gamed him out, I'd love to get your sense of this. I find myself thinking, okay, what if you know, they ultimately decided they wanted to compel the release of these documents and, and witnesses that he so far has stifled? They go all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court says, yes, you have to produce them. Uh, he says, you know what, I'm still not going to do it. I don't care because that's very much, you know, he is a very l'état, c'est moi kind of guy. So he, he does that. And then maybe the Republican senators walk down to the White House and have one of those famous late night chats with him where they say, you know, we can't really support you in the trial if you're not even going to comply with Congress. And he says, I don't care about that either. And then he gets removed by trial and they start trying to swear in Mike Pence and he still won't leave. And he mm -hmm. still considers himself president. And in the way, <laughs> in, the way in your book, he's able to rally certain segments of the passenger population. You know, th there will be some people who are, will be willing to still flock to his standard under those situations. Yeah. You know, and I don't know. I mean, I, I hate to impose <laughs> such a dark scenario on yeah. you. But, you know, I do wonder about that. Well, what's weird is that I I think he really is a f very fearful person, and I think that he is really into face-saving to a certain extent. And so that's why I think this impeachment really hurts him. And he does talk about a stain, and he talks about, you know, there's only... He's very well aware that he's going to be the third impeached president, and that's going to be on his obituary and gravestone and, and on and on. And so... I think he is perpetually unaware of the effects of his behavior. Like, he doesn't understand why people don't like him. He doesn't understand why celebrities have abandoned him. He doesn't understand why 50-odd percent of the population disapproves him. He really, because he does think he's doing a phenomenal job. But in terms of a person that's really going to fight to the end, I don't think he's that way. I mm -hmm. mean, I remember when there was a Trump executive that said he very well might just leave. Mm-hmm. And she was she had been with him for 20 years and isn't there anymore. But she felt like she really understood his ways and said, you know, he might just he could just walk away one day. <laughs> and then I also like I, somebody I know it was saying that there was a, a small movement out there or some chatter about billionaires getting together and just paying him off to leave. Because <laughs> what if you gave him $500 million just to walk away? Would he do it? That's your next, there's your next, that's the sequel. Is the, yeah, isn't that The world's biggest buyout. Yeah. You know, they, they actually, they do a buyout and they just buy him out. I, I love that concept. One thing that I want to bring up that I think is in the book is that the obverse, the flip side of that self-loathing, and I also want to see some of that self-loathing clearly in your book and in real life involves his lustful feelings about his own very attractive 
daughter. But the obverse of all that self-loathing is this kind of hypercompensating confidence. And, you know, Daniel Kahneman says that overconfidence is the most ineradicable human bias. You can get rid of everything else. <laughs> and we still, there's this thing called the Dunning-Kruger effect where people just absolutely tend to think they're better at things that they than they are. You know, 83% of Frenchmen believe they are better than average lovers. So, and, and he's, Trump is like in the diorama for that, I think, right? I mean, for all of yeah. the self-doubt and self-loathing, he also really believes that he's a better general than his generals, that he's yeah. a better spy than his CIA director. And that if he hangs out with firemen, he's a fireman. Mm-hmm. You know, at a certain point I, in this book, I have him being a fireman or he thinks he's a fireman. <laughs> I went to a rally once in Sacramento early on where he hung out with the firemen and you could tell that that was where he was most comfortable and most felt like these are my guys. And the place that he, I think he pictures himself, you know, he wants to be, he was always talking about his generals out of central casting and he talks about men's looks a lot and the soldier that looks this way and he you know this this obsession with uniforms and authority and i think that that's where he pictures himself even though he of course hid away from the vietnam war and has backed away from every fight that he's ever encountered and so it is this I think that this is why all of us have obsessed for three years, is that he is really one of the more fascinating humans that have existed, you know, because there are so many contradictions, so many bizarre things. He's at once, and I'll I'll give him credit for being funny, because I always, we have to note that he is actually pretty funny sometimes. And he does have a charm that is sometimes forgotten, and that he did charm his those that support him, and I think he continues to charm them. But at the same time, this incredible neediness, this incredible insecurity, this lack of impulse control, you know, this lusting for his own daughter. I mean, all of these, you just, and that's like the first layer of the onion, you know, but then also this tolerance for cruelty that I think is really unique. I think that I don't know if we have had a president that has had no empathy whatsoever. Mm -hmm. As horrible as George W. was in terms of starting two wars and breaking open Iraq irrevocably, I think he was an empathetic person. But Trump, you know, to have this incredible mix of traits, but, you know, topped off with an utter lack of feeling for any other humans, it's a very toxic Mm. combination that we cannot do this again. You know, there should be an empathy test at the very least. And that, can you mirror neurons? Can Mm -hmm. you match somebody's feelings? If somebody, if you see somebody crying, does that evoke a feeling of empathy with you? If not, then you cannot lead this country. That's like a basic (laughs) thing. Can you read? Do you have a pulse? Do you have empathy? Those things at the very least, and have you read the Constitution? Maybe those are the four requirements in addition to being 35 years old and born in the U.S. Right. So, yeah, that's also called theory of mind. You know, are you able to recognize other people as having full-blown identities and sensitivities? I have one more thing I wanted to ask you about, because you and I had very similar experiences, I think, in terms of going to Trump rallies and meeting people who were really, really actually kind of nice. And before he would get up on stage, they would be fun to talk to. 
and for you, sure you'd be you could joke around with them and some of the people I you know kind of knew I went to ones around here where people kind of know me so they would you know tease me about who I was but in a nice way and then yeah. he would get up on stage and I was like oh I don't know what about you but I was over in the kind of cordoned off press area and at a certain point he would go and these people and he would point to us these are the worst people in the world <laughs> and and the people who had been so nice to me 20 minutes ago started booing at me I'm, I actually at one point looked out over them and went guys we, we were just having such a nice yeah. chat you know and, and and I guess one of the questions that I have because I know you had very similar experiences but you know this is all going to be over at some point one way or yeah. another he gets impeached and removed or he gets bought out by billionaires or he loses an election and you know I mean I find myself wondering can we get back to the friendly part of those conversations that I think you and I both had with Trump supporters. Yeah, I you know, I, I always say, like, I, I go to rallies and I get a ticket and I move with the audience. So I've never been in the press pool mm-hmm. and I just sort of roam around. I have conversations with people and everyone I meet has been reasonable, thoughtful, interesting to talk to, sense of humor, conflicted. They have reservations. You know, they have nuanced feelings. And so I learned so much And I have yet to meet like the stereotypical brown shirt Hitler youth kind of maniac, you know, that Mm. I think that we assume that the majority of his supporters are. Instead, I meet regular people all the time that we have good conversations. And, you know, usually they're only too happy to explain themselves. And especially if you listen, I'll give people 30 minutes to just talk and they explain themselves. But you'd really do find some very odd thinking. And my favorite story was uh, I was at the rally in El Paso. And I met the T-shirt vendors. They, it was a young African-American guy and a young white woman with sort of dyed pink hair. And they'd been following Trump around for years, selling T-shirts. And it, they did not look like prototypical Trump supporters, but they were selling the MAGA gear. And, and I said, well, you know, what is it about him, you know, that, that appeals to you? And the woman said, well, he puts things in order. And I said, okay, that, so things under Obama were out of order? Oh, she said, oh, yeah, they were out of order. And he put things in order. (laughs) So there's that tendency toward authoritarianism that has been talked about a lot. And that's what cuts across all sort of demographic lines is that there are a lot of people that want the one strong man to say what's what, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's so much of his appeal. And then I said, but do you guys have insurance? You know, how do you get health care? No, we don't have insurance. We go to the emergency room. And I said, well, what if we were going to tax the millionaires and billionaires just a little bit and you could get universal health care and you wouldn't have to, you'd have a doctor and it'd be free and you can you know, go there anytime and make sure you're well. And he said, well, and the young man said, I don't, I'm not for that because tomorrow I might be the millionaire and I don't want my future millions taxed <laughs> at a 1% higher rate. And then you get into like that sort of worship of wealth. Mm-hmm. And it is so unique to this country, I think. And everyone thinks that their millionaire status is right around the corner and that they're not ready to share their future millions. And I think that, that those two things really summed up so much of his, I think, the superficial level of his appeal and made you think like, you know, I think we can convince people and I think that we can return to our better selves. And I think under Obama, you saw that we did. And I think that there are so many Republican candidates, too, who are morally upstanding and nimble thinking and intellectually curious. And so I think that this really is a once in a nation's history kind of moment because <laughs> I don't think he has a precedent. I really don't see anyone else out there that could 
do the same thing. So he really doesn't, I don't think he has a successor. And I, the beauty of writing a book like this is that it has an ending. Right. You know, I was able to sort of write the ending that I hope and believe will happen. So that's our first episode. There's a lot of people I need to thank, but I don't really have time. But I do need to thank uh, my two producers, Jonathan McPants and Betsy Kaplan, and to tell you to subscribe to Pardon Me on any podcast feed that you're using and to email us with any questions you have to pardonme at ctpublic.org. We'll talk to you again very soon.